Would you like to live a happier, healthier, and more fulfilled life? Cultures from all over our planet have been addressing that concern for thousands of years, and their answers can help you in your life today. Welcome to The Sweet Spot, where healing, spirituality, and culture meet. Join anthropologist and healer Robert Better as he introduces you to healing and spirituality in world cultures. Here's the host of your show, Robert Better. Welcome back, listeners. I'm here for the next segment with Ken Cohen. Ken, welcome back to our program. Thank you. It's good to be here again. So today we're going to have a chance to delve a little deeper into the story that we began last time, where we talked about the challenges in publishing the book, um, both in terms of feeling that it would be accepted within the Native community, but also that the book would reflect the right values, the right understanding, which we talked about through story. We talked a little bit about how it is a story that's connected to people, it's connected to place. Today, we're gonna look a little bit more deeply into that story, and I'd like to know a little bit about how you ended up there in the first place, and then maybe we could talk about some of the most important teachers in your life. So, welcome back, Ken. Thank you. So, what do you mean by how I ended up there, if you can clarify? So, so yeah, so there, by there, I mean finding yourself in the midst of Indian country. You know, mm -hmm. you and I both grew up in New York, as I recall. You're, you're a yeah. New Yorker originally. Mm -hmm. So people always ask me that question. You know, how did you end up there, meaning in the middle of indigenous communities in the first place? It's a, an unusual thing to happen to somebody from New York. Yeah, and I should say that this really isn't something that I expected or was looking for. I know it's become almost a kind of cliche to say that you don't look for the medicine, it has to look for you, but that's really what happened in my own life. I mean, there was certainly nothing in my original early background from my biological parents. I mean, I'm blessed to have two sets of parents, my adoptive parents and my biological parents, but there's nothing in my, from my biological side that would have prepared me for this, this walk, this journey. And, you know, it's also always a matter of asking yourself if you're willing to accept the path that Creator has uh, put before you, if you're willing to walk that path, or accept the consequences, actually, if you don't. Uh, so, as far as the actual kind of factual story of how this began, although in my early 20s, I did get to travel with some indigenous people, I did have some brief meetings, I uh, went to some wonderful, wonderful places, had a, an extraordinary visionary experience in a cave, a vision quest cave in Shirakawa National Forest. That to me is not really where the important part of the story begins. The important part begins when I found a mentor and a teacher. I, I basically had no sense of really of who I was. And I feel like I had a, not just a second set of parents, but several sets of parents. I'll give you just a, a few examples. When I was about 20, oh, I don't know, 22, 23 years old, 
I met through a Mohawk friend, an extraordinary spiritual teacher, what some people might call a medicine man in, in Eastern Canada, named Inchuk. Inchuk means otter in Innu, not Inuit. I know many people are more familiar with the term Inuit. Not Inuit, but Innu. The Innu are called the Montagnier in French. They are original Algonquin language family people from Quebec, from Labrador, Baffin Island. Their language is very close to Nehiao, that is to the Cree language. They're mutually intelligible. You can have a conversation easily if you speak Cree with someone who speaks Innu. So I met this wonderful man, Inchuk, through our mutual Mohawk friend. We met at a Greek restaurant. Inchuk and I both loved, well, he's passed on, still love Greek food. And we, uh, when we met, his first, you know, we shook hands, and his first words to me were rather strange and extraordinary. You know, he, he knew a little bit about me through our mutual friend. Here's how we started a conversation. He said to me, tell me, tell me what you think about this question. What's the origin of evil? This is, this is how we started. I mean, what would you answer? What would you, how do you answer a question like that? Do you say greed? Do you, I mean, what is it? So I actually said, well, I, I would say human greed. He said, oh no. He said, it's, it's assumption of ownership of the land, often accompanying a village-based and farming lifestyle. He said, it's, it's essentially colonialism wherever wherever and whenever it occurs. He said the, the lifestyle is what creates the attitude. And that launched a conversation that has lasted over 40 years. <laughs> so, and, you know, he told me that I was like a baby. I didn't know anything. So he, I remember early in our friendship, and I, uh, at that point I started visiting him absolutely as often as possible, over many year period of time. I remember one time he brought me up to uh, Mount Royal in Montreal, in the heart of Montreal. And he said, I want to uh, start you the way we start teaching our children, with the presentation of the stone. We sat on a rock, we went off into the forest, we sat on a rock, and he took a stone from the ground and explained to me how no elder is as old as a stone. These are the first people. These are the ones who were here first. Originally, there were only the stone people, what in, in Cree we call uh, Asani, yeah, the stone and the mountain. And the stone is like a person who can go camping in the woods that is totally self-sufficient. They don't need anything. They're the oldest and the wisest. They were the first people on earth. Originally, the stones were covered by snow and ice. When the ice melted, then came the second form of life, the plant people. At first, the moss and the lichens, and gradually other plants. But the plants need the stone to survive. They need the minerals. They need the sun. They need the water. They need the minerals from the stone. 
they're, they're a greater level of dependency. The stone is more independent. And I'm, I'm making a long story very short, but basically Inchuk then spoke about the animal relations and how the animals need the plants and the stone, because whereas the plant, the plant people can synthesize the elements of life, the proteins within their own bodies, as long as they have sunshine and earth, the animals need other animals and plants to live and to survive. And then finally, the most dependent form of life, the most pitiable, as our Lakota friends sometimes say, the two-leggeds, human beings. Well, he spent about an hour uh, presenting this teaching in quite a bit more detail and with certain uh, tools, certain uh, things like cloths and tobacco and so forth to accompany the teaching so that it would stay with me. So Inchuk was one of my first very important mentors. And not long after that, I'll tell you one other story, uh, maybe one or two, because there have been several people who have had this big influence on my life, on my thinking, on my being. Not long afterwards, I was going to graduate school in Berkeley, Berkeley, California, or as we used to call it, Berserkly. And um, I was studying classical Chinese, my, my day job, as uh, I sometimes like to say, is uh, teaching Chinese martial arts and some Chinese healing arts. The reason I call it my day job is because part of the professional ethic, one might say, of indigenous medicine, at least North American Indian medicine, is that we do not charge money for ritual, for spiritual activities, or for healing. I never have and never will. So anyone who's a medicine person, at least in today's world, we most of us need to have other jobs. So anyway, that's my day job. So I was studying classical Chinese at University of California in Berkeley. And one of, uh, one of my teachers at the time was an expert in Tang Dynasty lore, 6th to 9th century. And I was doing a research project under him, uh, looking at the symbolism of semi-precious stones such as emerald, r uh, rubies, sapphire, and so forth, in Tang Dynasty Taoist poetry, Taoism being the indigenous spirituality of China. Well, around that same time, I happened to meet outside of the university environment, a, a person who had been involved in Native American uh, lifestyle for many, many years. She had been a, a student and a close friend of a noted Hopi grandmother, had harvested and planted with Hopi people for over 10 years. And when we met, we just met socially, uh, you know, over coffee. And during the conversation, when I mentioned to her about studying the lore of stones in ancient China, she said to me, oh, you have to meet the medicine man who lives only an hour from here who's known for his connection, deep spiritual connection with stones, especially quartz crystals. And his name is Katua, Katua Christie, the great grandson of Ned Christie, a name well known to the Cherokee people. Some people called him the last Cherokee warrior in the sense of the last person to go to war 
with the U.S. Army uh, during that period of the late 1800s. Of course, we have warriors today, people that are fighting for the rights of the people. That's how we use that term warrior today in, in an honorable way. I mean, you could be an attorney fighting for native rights in the courtroom, and you are a warrior in the Indian sense. So my friend suggested that uh, she would set up a meeting with Katua, and we met in a park one Sunday late morning. I was going to meet them and take them out for lunch. And when Katua was walking towards me, he didn't look anything like what might be a person's stereotype of a medicine man. He was wearing dirty overalls and suspenders, and he had what looked like a turban on his head. I'd never seen the traditional Cherokee regalia or the type of hat that is worn. He had an eagle feather sticking out the side of his, of his hat. And instead of shaking hands, I mean, I was so stupid at the time. Let me tell you, I was in my 20s. I didn't even know to bring tobacco. I mean, I was so ignorant. I didn't even know that you don't start a conversation or meet an elder without offering tobacco first and having gifts. I thought, oh, I'm going to take them for dinner. Big deal, you know? You know what I'm saying? Tobacco is what opens the door. That's the sign. That's, that's the way of saying, I respect you. I honor you. Let's pray together. We share common values. I didn't know that. So I expected maybe he would shake hands. He didn't. He squinted his eyes and looked at me and said, I'll never forget this. He said in his heavy Oklahoma accent, you have the second biggest aura of anybody I've ever seen. But if I didn't know better, I would say you were pregnant. What's that thing around your belly? This is what he said to me. Thought, what the heck? This guy's a wild man. I just, I loved him immediately. I explained to Katua. I said, Katua, that's extraordinary what you're seeing because I, I practice a kind of Chinese healing exercise where our emphasis is on developing what we call qi or life force around the lower abdomen. We believe that the lower abdomen is like a reservoir for healing energy. And that's what I was just practicing earlier this morning before you arrived. I was practicing for an hour in the park. So anyway, uh, I took him out for lunch, he and, and his uh, student, and we, uh, we became friends. He invited me that week to visit him at his home in Santa Rosa, California, uh, not that far away. And when I visited him, I was sitting in his living room, and he says to me, I heard you're interested in stones. I said, yes, I'm very interested. I said, I'm, I'm studying it academically at the university, but I have a, a personal feeling of deep connection with stones, uh, and especially the quartz crystals. And he said to me, well, let's see if they're interested in you. He said, open your hand. So I opened my hand. And he takes, another, he takes a quartz crystal that was lying on, his, on the table and he puts it on my palm. He says, put your other hand on top of it, which I did. He said, now close your eyes and don't open them till I tell you to. So I'm sitting there for 20 minutes. At first, I thought, I wonder what's going on. You know, am I gonna be here all day? Is this some sort of test? What is happening here? But gradually I relaxed into it. And about 20 minutes later, he said, okay, open your eyes. Now tell me what you learned. And I explained to him what my experience was. He said, okay, 
I expect to see you here at least twice a week, which I did for the next five years. And we remained close. I became his only apprentice during his lifetime. And that was true from 1976 until his passing in 1987. He even visited me in Colorado, taught me many things. Uh, not, this is not the, the, the space you know, on the podcast to talk about some of it, but uh, had to do with the little people, had to do with connecting with the spirit of nature, the spirits of nature, had to do with ways of praying, ways of healing, ways of doctoring. He's the one who gave me my Indian name, my Native American name, and uh, gave me my first pipe. Uh, I, I try to be worthy of what he saw in me. I can't say for certain what that was, but I remember when I was only in my mid-20s, one time he had this beautiful something, I didn't know what it was, wrapped up in, in uh, cloth, in red cloth. He said, this is for you. I was at his house, as I often was. And I opened it up, and uh, it was a pipe. It was a sacred pipe. Uh, you know, I, uh, boy, he saw, he saw the look on my face, and he said something to me. He said, uh, you think you're not worthy of this? He says, if you're not worthy of this, no one is. Man, I try to live up to that. Whatever the heck he saw in me. I have dedicated my life. I have prayed to Creator that I be worthy of that pipe because we never own it. We're only carrying it for Creator. That pipe is us. We want to become the pipe in the course of our lives. We want that holy breath to move through us. We want to be in unity with creation the way that stone joins the wooden stem, the way the stone bowl joins the wooden stem the way the stillness of the stone joins movement, the way our ancient relatives come together to teach us, the way the breath of the plant people come into our body, the way it leaves us with prayer, the way it purifies our minds and our hearts, the way it reminds us to respond to any request for help and to do our best and to honor all of life, especially the women who first gifted the pipe all these and so much more. When I think about the, my beloved elder, Katua, passed on in 1987. So that's just uh, kind of, as they say, tip of the iceberg. There were other elders I worked with from other nations. Eventually, not that long thereafter, I met my, my Cree family. Uh, that's a whole other story. Was adopted by Andrew Natauhau, former chief of Sturgeon Lake First Nation in Saskatchewan. And I stay close with my, he's passed on, but I stay close with my relatives there and my other elders. I, uh, you know, as I said in the beginning, as you could tell from these kind of stories, this wasn't a path I looked for, uh, but it is one that has uh, sort of chosen me, I guess you could say. And I just uh, walk it with uh, respect, best of my ability, and try to be of service with the gifts I've been given. Because as, as another, still another elder once uh, said to me, you know, she said, if you're given a gift and you, you accept it, 
then your vow is to use it in service to others. If you have a power, if you have a power and you keep it inside, that's the source of your own disease. Because the only reason you would be given that power is so you can serve creation, so you can be of help, so you can be a warrior for the people, so you can fight injustice. So whatever that power is, we need the courage to use it and express it in the world. And not, not uh, you know, go to war against ourselves by saying, oh, I'm not worth it, I'm not worthwhile, I don't deserve it. If you have the courage to accept that power, then use it with kindness, with love, with a clear mind, with a good heart. Don't look for hideouts. Face your own shadows. Find out who you are. Be accountable to the people that taught you, to the communities. So that's uh, kind of give you an idea of my, my thoughts when I think back to those, those wonderful people who shared with me. And, and all of these values, all of these underlying ideas really come through in both your writings and in your words, Ken, and I, I want to take my hat, hat off to you for really walking that road, you know, for, for absorbing the best of the teachings and most importantly, living it in your life. And Ken, um, we're going to go into this in more detail in our final segment that's going to be coming up where we're going to be talking about how you've taken these teachings, these values, these life-transforming experiences and put them into the life that you have today. So I want to thank you so much for what we were able to talk about today and look forward to the next one. Thank you. It's been an honor. Thank you, Ken, and thank you listeners for being here today. This has been Healing and Spirituality in World Cultures with Robert Vetter. Thanks for listening. Please rate, subscribe, and share with everyone you know who might benefit from these messages. Until next time, remember, be kind and loving to yourself and others. Together, we can heal ourselves and help build a better world.